dead cats hanging from poles, little dead are out in droves. I remember Halloween. Brown-leaved vertigo, where skeletal life is known. I remember Halloween. This day, anything goes, burning bodies hanging from poles. I remember Halloween. Halloween by the Misfit. The Survival Lab. Survival Lab. Oh, tidy, tight, bang on. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sean. And welcome to week 13. Spooky week 13. It's Halloween week. It is Halloween. Halloween is one of my favourite times of the year. Me too. Spooktastic. Yeah. Love it. Halloween every day. It should be, shouldn't it? Mm. I like, uh, well, we're going to do some extra things because it's Halloween. Yes, we're going to treat you, dear listener. We're going to film ourselves pumpkin carving. Yeah, I think we should have a competition. Okay. Uh, what, to see who can injure themselves the least? <laughs> <laughs> no power tools. <laughs> no, who can do the best pumpkin face? Okay, we can have a little competition, a, yeah. friend, a friendly competition. Friend- obviously, we're both going to win. Ob- obviously. <laughs> uh, so we'll put that up on a YouTube link. Mm. And we're also, we've been collecting some spooky stories from our listeners. Yes. So uh, we're going to share them. And it's not too late to send us your story. Get in touch with us on the social medias. That's right. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. We have. An Instagram page. Yep. We even tweet. I did think maybe we should get on TikTok, but I don't really know what it is. I don't know what TikTok <laughs> is. Oh, and we also, you can email us, oh, the yeah. survival lab at gmail.com. We will read your emails. Um, if you wanted to contact us through the snail mail, uh, you can't. No. Because we're not going to give out our addresses. Yeah, no, that's not that's not how you survive. That's not how you survive. <laughs> <laughs> that's 101 on how to not get murdered during your podcast. Yeah, don't tell the people where you live. No, not that we think anyone's going to kill us. Mm, I think it might be likely. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you were going to tell me something about... So, I, I love Halloween, and I wanted to tell you about the origins of Halloween. Ooh, I'm excited. Oh, good. So Halloween is a holiday celebrated each year on October 31st. The tradition originated with the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a time to honour all saints. Soon, All Saints Day incorporated some of the traditions of Samhain. The evening before was known as All Hallows' Eve and later Halloween. Over time, Halloween evolved into a day of activities like trick-or-treating, carving pumpkins, festive gatherings, donning costumes and eating treats. So Samhain was the day that marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the world of the living and the dead became blurred. So the end of the year was October 31st, the pagan year. So on the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. To commemorate the event, Druids built huge sacred bonfires where people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the Celtic deities. Did you used to do that, Sean, in Wales? Um, well, I'm going to tell you about some of our Welsh traditions uh, for Halloween. Okay. Would you like to know them now? Or should I hang on? Yeah, I, I want to know them now. Is you want that to know okay? them now. So we used to call it Calon Gaeaf, which means midwinter. Uh, and it is, like you were saying, it's the celebration of the year changing. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Kalongeyav is celebrated on the 1st of November. The 31st of October is called Asprid Norse, and that means ghost night or spirit Ooh. night. And that is where you get this traditional Halloween sort of celebration from. So some of the superstitions uh, were that you should never go to a graveyard <sighs> on Asprid Norse. Uh, because that's where the undead hang out. You should also not cr- uh, hang out by crossroads because they like to chill there too. Okay. Um, and it's kind of their night, so you have to respect that that's mm-hmm. what the, the spirits are doing. Uh, we used to also peel an apple, and you try and keep the apple peel really, really long, and then you throw it over your shoulder, and you see what what shape it lands in, and that will be um, the letter of the first initial of the person that you're going to fall in love with. And um, obviously my parents made me do that and I used to be embarrassed and then they tease <laughs> me and things. We used to also do apple bobbing. Yes. Uh, and obviously carving pumpkins. But we used to do Swedes. Okay, I have a bit about Swedes I think, they, bit. I think they grow better in Wales than <laughs> I think that's where it origi- originated from though. I think it was Swedes. Uh, okay. I'll talk about it in a bit. And then we, uh, well we never did this, but I know some families did because it would have scared the bejesus out of me as a child. Um, you'd write your name on a stone before going to bed mm. and you'd place the stone by the fire and in the morning if your name stone had disappeared you're going to die that <gasps> year terrifying absolutely terrifying so we never used to do that one yeah but growing up like we because we lived so rurally we couldn't go trick-or-treating I do remember one year my, we begged my dad that if we could go trick-or-treating and he said, yeah, yeah, we trick-or-treat on the house. Mm. So we went out, all dressed up, knocked on our own front door. My dad did not open it. <laughs> <laughs> We're out of the fridges. Oh, oh, God, God. I don't know how we didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Yeah, he got you good. So yeah, there there's some of the Welsh traditions. Well, talking of trick or treating, um, Americans began to dress up in costumes and go to house to house asking for food or money, which became today's trick or treat tradition. And young, this is like what you said. Young women believed that on Halloween they could divine the name or appearance of their future husband by doing tricks with yarn, apple peelings, or mirrors. Ooh. Mm. So by the late eighteen hundreds, there was a move in America to mould Halloween into a holiday more about community and neighbourly get-togethers. About ghosts, pranks, and witchcraft. At the turn of the century, Halloween parties for both children and adults became the most common way to celebrate the day, and the parties focused on games, foods of the season, and festive costumes. Parents were encouraged by newspapers and community leaders to take anything frightening or grotesque out of Halloween celebrations. Because of these efforts, Halloween lost most of its superstitious and religious overtones by the beginning of the 20th century. Ooh. I know. Superstitions and ghosty stuff is fun. Yes. Um, so on Halloween, when it was believed that ghosts came back to the earthly world, people thought that they would encounter ghosts if they left their homes. To avoid being recognised, um, hundred years ago this is, by the ghosts, people would wear masks when they left their homes after dark. Oh. Yeah, so that the ghosts would mistake them for fellow spirits. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, on Halloween, to keep ghosts away from their houses, people would place bowls of food outside their homes to appease the ghosts and prevent them from trying to enter. Halloween has always been a holiday 
filled with mystery, magic and superstition. It began as a Celtic end of summer festival during which people felt especially close to the deceased relatives and friends. For these friendly spirits, they set places at the dinner table, left treats on doorsteps and along the side of the road and lit candles to help loved ones find their way back to the spirit world. So today, today's Halloween ghosts are often depicted as more fearsome, malevolent and our customs and superstitions are scarier too. I found that really interesting because I really like the idea of it being a day to, I suppose, honour your loved ones that are... Well, yeah, so like Mexico, Mexico has the Day of the Dead celebrations, which is about, you know, paying reverence to your mm. uh, passed on ancestors. I like that as well, you know, a bit of time to reflect and think about Yeah. those who are no longer in the mortal world. Mm. See, it's nice. But yeah. I don't think we give ourselves time in our culture to, to think about that, really. So hundreds of years ago, death was more of a part of life. And I think nowadays, death happens in private it doesn't it in hospitals and we don't talk about it and we don't talk about it no and it's quite clinical it is really clinical we no longer sit up with a dying person in our homes we don't watch over their corpse in the coffin after they've passed on because like in the olden days if someone died in your house a family Mm. member you cleaned the body yes now it all happens in a morgue doesn't it it does and I wonder if that's where part of the fear of yeah I imagine a lot of fear comes comes from from, yeah so that's a little bit of a quick rundown of the origins of Halloween it's like a cheap Cheat for Halloween. Cheat indeed. Halloween cheat sheet. Cool. I'm going to tell you a story. I think that's what we agreed. I don't remember what we agreed well, anymore. Well, I'm going to jump in and tell you a Do story. This story has two beginnings, but no ending. One possible beginning starts in 1941 in a pub in England where two men and one woman are spending the evening drinking. It's the war and nobody is who they claim to be. Jack and his friend, a Dutchman, Dutch-German-speaking man named Van, a trapeze artist named Frank, mm. from the Birmingham Hippodrome, and a woman referred to by Jack as the Dutch Peace, but we're going to call her Bella. Well, they all decided to go for a drive. The other beginning is in Hagley Wood in 1943, where four children discover the skeletal remains of a woman entombed inside a witch elm. The skull still had a patch of putrefying flesh and hair. Yeah. A year after the discovery, chilling graffiti started to appear, posing the question, who put Bella in the witch elm? (sighs) And the answer is, well, we can't be sure because uh, it still remains a mystery to to today. Uh, The current location of her skeleton and autopsy report is unknown. All trace of her has disappeared. All that is left is this unsolved mystery and a bucket ton of speculation. Mm. Are you intrigued? I am indeed. But before we get too deep into Bella her who and who she might have been and why she was in a witch elm, let's first look at the witch elm itself. It's a tree and it's linked with melancholy and death. Perhaps because the tree can drop branches without warning. Mm. So that's pretty terrifying. <laughs> Um, The witch elm wood was traditionally used for coffins, and in folklore, if you sleep under a witch elm, you will dream the future. The forest in which the tree that held Bella, Hagley Wood, and Hagley Wood has links to witch covens who practice the dark arts. One such dark art... (laughs) (laughs) One such dark art was the Hand of Glory. (laughs) 
Do you know what the hand of glory is? No, I'm just giggling at your um, Freudian slip before we said <laughs> Continue. A hand of glory uh, is a candle made from the hand of a criminal killed in the gallows. That's awful. <laughs> no. <laughs> it has like a wick coming out of it. I feel bad for laughing. Yeah, well, it's, yeah it's pretty gross. Um, its powers were said to be able to open any locked door and to render people motionless. <gasps> now, I'm sorry, if someone came up to me with a hand candle, I'd, oh, I'd, I'd freeze. Yeah. I'm not sure it's magical, it's just kind of like, oh, dude. Freaky. That's pretty gross. Why have you got a hand candle? Anyway, so that's, that's that. <clears throat> so, in 1943, when the four local boys were out uh, poking about for birds' nests, and I'd like to tell everyone not to do this. Do not know. Um, in Hagleywood near Witchbury Hill, good name, they came across a large witch elm. It was a big tree with many little twiggy branches sprouting out of it. It was the perfect tree to investigate. As one of the boys began to climb the tree, he glanced down into the hollow trunk and discovered a skull, a human skull with teeth and hair. Freaking out, the boys swore they would never blab. But that night, one of the young boys confessed to the finding. When police checked out the trunk of the tree, they found an almost complete skeleton with shoes, a gold wedding ring, and some fragments of clothing. The skull was valuable evidence in that it still had some tufts of hair and a clear, clear dental pattern. The remains of the hand were found some distance from the tree. It was found that she'd been dead for 18 months. She was aged between 30 and 40 and that she'd been put into the tree either pre-rigor mortis or while she was still alive. (gasps) Despite using dental records to try and match her to missing persons, no identification of Bella could be made. Many speculated that Bella was a murdered sex worker or had been scared of the falling bombs and voluntarily got into the tree or that she was a Nazi spy who was entombed as punishment. Mm. Or was she a victim of a horrific crime linked to the occult? Is that why the hand was missing off her body? Is that why she was entombed inside the witch elm? Investigations in the 40s petered out. Nothing was found by the police, but the the mystery intrigued the locals and a 1950s local newspaper revisited the case, asking locals if they had any knowledge on the mystery of the woman in the tree. And it was in 1953 that a letter was sent to the newspaper. I'm going to read out the letter. (coughs) Regarding the article... The witch elm crime, by all means, they are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give you the answers is now beyond the jurisdiction of this uh, of the earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic or moonlight rites. The only clue I can give you is that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942 and the victim was Dutch Arrived illegally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. But who was to write that letter and who was it about? It seems it was about Jack Mossop. As the grisly story goes, Jack was a big drinker. He liked the ladies and he often spent his time getting smashed. It was 1941, during the Second World War, and Jack was friends with a Dutch man whose name was Van Ralt. Um, And some articles say another man named Frank, who might have been a trapeze artist. 
As the story goes, and allegedly, Van was a German spy and Jack was giving him details of munitions stores in exchange for money. The woman, another spy, and after much drinking, Jack, Van and Bella, and possibly Frank the trapeze artist, well, they all got into the car and Jack and Van, that Jack and Van shared and it appears that Bella was so drunk she passed out. So for either fun or fearing she was dead, they took her to the witch elm and they posted her feet first into the hollowed out tree. She was found with some clothes, uh, she was found with some cloth in her mouth. Um, so had she been silenced or had someone suffocated her? Either way, she wasn't found until that fateful day that the young boys discovered her. Una, the writer of the letter, was Jack's first wife and it was not a happy marriage. The relationship broke down and Una left Jack. She did talk to the police about his confession um, to her. Do you want to hear it? Yes. So, Jack obviously told Una about that night, and this is what she said. I was married to Jack Mossop in 1932. It was in 1940 that a man named Van Ralt came to our house. I believe this man was Dutch, and as far as I know, he had no particular job, and I had the suspicion that he was engaged on some work that he didn't want to talk about. But in my opinion, it might have been that he was a spy for he had plenty of money and there were times that my husband appeared to have plenty of money after meeting him. Mm. It was either in March or April 1941 that my husband came home and was noticeably white and agitated. Uh, this was about 1am in the morning and he'd asked me for a drink. I made a comment that I thought he, that he'd had enough to drink because he'd been out all day but I gave in and gave him a drink. He said that he'd been to the Lighten Arms with Van and the Dutch Peace and that she'd got awkward. My husband was driving the car, which belonged to Van, and she, and she got in beside him. Van was in the back, and she fell over towards my husband, and he said to Van that she'd passed out. Van told him where to drive to, and, and they went to the wood. Stuck her in a hollow tree, Van said she would come to a census the following morning. As far as I know, my first husband came home. I saw my first husband, Jack, on three occasions after I was forced to leave him in December 1941. I tried to get my possessions back, including furniture from the house. On one of these occasions, he told me that what I first thought was a further story to put me off, and it goes as follows. That he thought he was losing his mind. He kept seeing a woman in the tree and she was leering at him. He held his head in his hand and said, It's getting on my nerves. I'm going crazy. It was about June 1942 when I heard that he'd been taken to the mental hospital in Stafford, where he died in August 1942. Gosh. I, I know, right? I, of course, have no proof that what he told me is the truth. But bearing in mind my husband's condition and what he said to me at the time, I've done my best to recall. I found Jack's death certificate. Ooh. And he died of cerebral softening. And that's possibly a stroke or trauma to the brain. Myocardial degradation. Oh, we can't. Chronic nephritis, which I googled, and apparently that's kidney failure. And acute confusional insanity and that's dementia i think that's just yeah uh, you can like have um hallucinations and all sorts of that so mm. he was a big drinker so alcohol definitely played the part in yes. jack's death he died at 29 years old oh my goodness was he driven mad by the act of placing bella in the witch elm 
Or had he imagined the whole ordeal? Did Una make the whole thing up to sully Jack's name after death? Was Van really a Nazi spy? And was Bella the victim of a murder or a prank gone wrong? And what? who wrote the chilling graffiti? Are they the true culp- culprits of the crime? We'll never know for sure who put Bella in the witch elm. So I kind of really asked more questions than answered any there with that story. I enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. What happened to the Trebuse artist, though? Uh, He's only really mentioned once in some people's work, uh, and then he disappears. Uh, And I forgot to tell you who I got that story off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was from a lot of it from Wikipedia and some other websites I forgot to write down, but I will make a note of them and put it as an amendment. Yeah, okay. So everyone is credited whose words I stole. And, uh, and I made some of them up myself. Good, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Did you know, though, Sean, Halloween was once so dangerous that it nearly got banned. Really? Yeah. Tell me more. Okay, picture the scene. As the Louisville short line chugged its way through Newport, Newport, Kentucky, the passenger train's engineer peered out into the dark night of October 31st, 1879, and saw something truly frightening. It was a body lying across the railroad tracks, pulling on the brake with all his might. The engineer halted his iron horse in the nick of time. You can imagine trying to yeah. stop the train. Well, they're big. Yeah, and he jumped out of the locomotive. As he rushed to the lifeless figure, the train operator quickly discovered why it wasn't moving. Oh, dear. It wasn't a person at all. Oh, dear. It, but a stuffed figure placed there by about 200 boys hiding along the tracks who started to howl with laughter at their Halloween trick. Naughty boys. <laughs> but although the juveniles had threatened his safety and that of his passengers, the engineer did not utter a single admonishment. Because after all, he'd engaged in similar pranks when he was a boy. Oh, I see. Yeah. So such things were to be expected on Halloween during the Gilded Age when the ghoulish holiday was free of candy and full of pranks, vandalism and even violence. Oh. So when immigrants from Scotland and Ireland brought their Halloween traditions to the United States in the middle of the 1800s, they celebrated as they did back in their homelands. So they didn't do all the costumes and the trick-or-treating. It was all about the pranks. Of course. So in Ireland, boys would carve spooky faces into turnips. Right. Like whales. To scare unwary travellers. And they would tie strings to cabbages and pull them through fields to scare people. Oh, I used to often be scared by a cabbage on a string. Uh, I'm sorry, but how can a cabbage on a string scare you? I guess if it's like in the middle of... The 1800s, and it's all dark, and it's night, and you just hear the thud, 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 as it goes through the tree, Maybe. the field, that might be scary. I might uh, have to do an experiment where I tie a cabbage to a string and drag it around the park, <laughs> see what happens. At night. People might just think I've got a new pet. <laughs> I think people are living in the park, though, to be fair. I found another big, massive tent. Ooh. Ooh. Well, I won't do it near them. I don't no. want to scare them with my cabbage. No. <laughs> but also, this is one you can do to the neighbours. So the Scots had one really obnoxious prank where they would pull up a cabbage stalk, get it smoking and shove it up to the keyhole at someone's door so that when that person came home they'd find a house filled with obnoxious smelling vapour. Wow. <laughs> They're all about the cabbage, aren't they? Well, there wasn't much else really, was no, there? <laughs> <laughs> so across the American countryside in the latter 1800s, common Halloween tricks included placing farmers' wagons and livestock on barn roofs. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Uprooting vegetables in backyard gardens and tipping over outhouses, be they occupied or not. So, Ooh, like, you pour a loo kind yeah. of situation when you get tip over. That's always a fear of mine uh, when we used to go to festivals. Oh, it still is. It still is a fear of mine. It's never happened. No. 
but you don't want it to so one example is a teetotaling protestant minister in ohio awoke after one halloween to discover his front porch decorated with beer signs and towering pyramids of beer kegs (laughs) (laughs) that's that's brilliant and in them days that would have been very embarrassing for him oh my goodness yeah you can just imagine can't you um so yeah it really got like Next full level, then. yeah. So, in the rural places, it's quite innocent the pranking, but as metropolitan areas expanded, kids took the pranking in cities and it became more destructive with setting fires, breaking glass, and tripping pedestrians. Still a bit funny. So, boys ran through the city streets, splattering people with bags of flour or black stockings filled with ashes. One year, youths in Kansas City waxed streetcar tracks on a steep hill causing a vehicle to slip and crash into another streetcar, seriously injuring a yeah, conductor. That's that's gone from being and saying yeah. to, to not. It's so, called taking it too far. It is, isn't it? So after a spate of Halloween destruction in 1902, the Cook County Herald expressed the frustration felt by many residents of Arlington Heights, Illinois. Most everybody enjoys a joke or fun to a proper degree on suitable occasions, but when property is damaged or destroyed, it's time to call a halt. We would advise the public to load their muskets or cannon oh, wow. That's with, very rock, yeah, or with rock, salt or bird shot. I don't know what that is. And when trespassers invade your premises at unseemly hours upon mischief bent, pepper them good and proper so they'll be effectually cured and have no further taste of such tricks. If you shoot somebody, they're going to be cured and not want to like prank nice. again. Following this, it got a bit tamer, like with the war and everything. Yeah. People were encouraged to not prank, to support the soldiers abroad, to take it away from Halloween in parts of um, America. America, October, the night before, so October 30th, became known as the Mischief Night. Yeah. And some places called it the Cabbage Night. Nice. I like the Cabbage uh, Night. Harking, you know, harking back to the old pranking traditions. But during the 70s and 80s, arsonists turned the Detroit night sky a Halloween orange by setting fire to trash cans, dumpsters and abandoned buildings. The destruction peaked in 1984 when more than 800 fires were set across the city in a three-night arson spree. Detroit responded by instituting dauntless curfews for unaccompanied youths under 18 and mobilising the city watch with garden hoses at the ready and vigilant eyes. More than 30,000 volunteers participated in the neighbourhood patrols in 1990. And thanks to these continued efforts, the number of fires around Halloween in Detroit have steadily steadily decreased to near-normal levels. Well done, people of Detroit. Don't burn your city. So... uh, what I took from that is a prank is fun sure until it's not that's some really good Just advice don't take it too far that's some solid advice <laughs> yeah don't get giddy making your neighbour's house smell of cabbage fun that's good setting your city on fire not fun and I like read about other stories where um, people pranking had surprised the pranky and they'd ended up being shot and things right yeah yeah yeah, yeah you gotta be careful you do if you're gonna prank make sure it's gonna be well received yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so have you, uh, you got another story for me? I'm going to tell you a story. Nice. And it's a true story. Excellent. And it's not very easy, listening, okay. but there is some there's, level of surviving in it. There's reasons why we tell stories. Yeah. And if it's a story that needs to be told, then we've got to tell it. On a rainy Halloween night in 1974, the children of Deer Park, Texas, were out knocking on doors... Ronald Clark O'Brien, an optician, was out too, watching over his kids, eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth, as they trick-or-treated in a suburban neighbourhood near their home. Joining them was the O'Brien's neighbour, Jim Bates, and his young son. One of the houses the group approached had all its lights switched off, but the kids banged on the door anyway, because, you know... Well, you never know. There could be sweets, and sweets are good. 
Um, but there was no answer. Either the occupants were hiding or no one was home. Growing impatient, the kids ran off to find another house and Jim followed. Ronald was left alone. Catching up with the others a short while later, Ronald had good news. He produced a handful of 21-inch pixie sticks, tubes of powdered sour candy. Turned out someone had been in at the dark house all along. The sweets were handed out, one to each of the children there, one for Jim's other child, and another to a ten-year-old boy Ronald had recognised from church as the group walked home. Before bed, Timothy O'Brien was allowed one treat from the evening's hall and picked up his pixie sticks tube, but the powdered sugar was stuck in the straw, and it wasn't until his dad helped him to dislodge it that he could take his first mouthful. It tasted bitter, and he complained. So Ronald grabbed him a glass of Kool-Aid to help him wash it down. Oh, dear. Less than an hour later, Timothy was dead. Oh, poor Timothy. No, Harris County Prosecutor Mike Hinton was keen to get his investigation underway. Hinton called Dr. Joseph. Oh, go for it, you can do it. I'm going to go with Jack Kinsick, I think, Chief Medical Examiner of nearby Harris County. A call to the morgue revealed that there was a scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth. Ooh. It's cyanide, said the doctor, not saying his surname again. <laughs> <laughs> An autopsy proved the medical examiner's hunch. A pathologist said Timothy had consumed enough cyanide to kill two people. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Tess later found that the top two inches of the pixie sticks had been packed with the poison. Police officers managed to recover the remaining sweets from the other children before any of them had a chance to dig in. Oh, my God, that's so lucky. This is why it's a bit of a survival one, because remember, the other children were given these pixie sticks, too. Um, And... They and the police officers noted that whoever was responsible had used staples to steal to seal the pixie sticks after tampering with them. Oh right. That's what saved another boy's life that night. So they found him in bed with the sweet in his hand, but he'd not been strong enough to undo the staples. <gasps> and thank goodness he hadn't, because yeah. he too would have been dead. Um so the police took Ronald back to the neighbourhood, the group had been trick or treating and so he could direct them to the house where he picked up the pixie sticks. But he was stumped. He just couldn't find the house and said he'd never seen the face of the person responsible that just emerged from a doorway and handed in the candy. Mm-hmm. Finding dodgy. Yep. So, like you, Sean, the investigators started to become suspicious. A few days went by, and it was incredibly frustrating for Hinton. So they took O'Brien out again, and they were really firm with him. Yeah. So the tactic worked. Ronald's memory was jogged. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden. And he pointed towards the house. The man who lived there wasn't home, so officers went to his place of work, which was Houston's William Hobby P. Airport. And they arrested him in front of his colleagues. The mystery was over. Case closed. But it wasn't closed. So the man had an alibi. He was working that night, and his wife and daughter were home. And it turned out the lights earlier, so they'd run out of candy. Ah. The home being in darkness. Colleagues and timesheets confirmed the man's story, and this only magnified... Hinton's suspicions. Well, yeah, it looks like someone's telling fibs. Another strange thing which inspired was that Ronald had written a song about Jesus and Timothy joining the Lord in heaven, and he'd grown agitated when his grieving family wouldn't stay up late to watch a recording of the performance being broadcast on television. That's weird. Weird. Yeah. So soon after, while he was teaching a class at the Pasadena Police Academy, detectives arrived at Hinton's door. They had discovered that Ronald had recently taken out life insurance policies on <gasps> both of his children. Oh, no. $10,000 per child in January of that year, and then a further 20000 on each month before Halloween. 
Oh my god, it's awful. So investigators already knew Ronald owed debts of over $100,000. So when they found out he'd called his insurers to ask about the payout at 9am the morning after Timothy's death... Oh my god, yeah. mm -hmm, It was clear that the case against him was being come together. So Graham did a warrant, a search of the O'Brien house, offered up a pair of scissors with plastic residue attached, which was similar to that found on the cyanide lace sweets. O'Brien was arrested and taken in for questioning. As the investigation continued, the evidence started to stack up against Ronald. It turned out O'Brien was going to community college, and in class, he would ask his professor questions like, what is more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison? Why would someone ask that? Yeah, unless they're planning on murdering. Yes. And another witness who worked for a chemical company in Houston told police a man had come in to buy some cyanide, but left after being told that the smallest amount he could buy was £5 in weight. Yeah. The man from the store said he couldn't identify O'Brien, but he remembered that his customer was wearing a beige or blue smock like a doctor. And O'Brien was an optician, and that was exactly the uniform he wore to work. Still, this was years before DNA testing and contactless debit cards, and police couldn't put the pixie sticks in Ronald's hands or proof he'd bought any cyanide. So, the 30-year-old optician maintained his innocence. So this um, Hinton remembers the case vividly, and in the decades that have passed, his memories have remained sharp. He said, O'Brien adored the attention. He says, I think he even loved it during his trial. Ah, uh, that's always worrying, isn't it? You know when you see absolute psychopaths and they just revel in it, don't they? Bundy. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So Ronald entered a not guilty plea with his defence blaming the tainted candy on some untraceable bogeyman, a sick individual using the cover of Halloween to poison unsuspecting children. But friends, family and co-workers all testified against the man the press were now calling the Candyman. Oh, good name. And on June 3rd, 1975, it took just 46 minutes for a jury to return a guilty verdict for one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. An hour later, it was decided that Ronald would be executed by electric chair. Well, it's Texas. Mm-hmm. Before and since the deer park poisoning, rumours of dodgy sweets being handed out have always surfaced around Halloween, but whether the fear is that the candies contain broken glass and razor blades, or that they're actually ecstasy pills, there's not much evidence to suggest um, parents actually have anything to worry about. Um, however, in 2000, a man in Minneapolis was charged with putting needles in the Snickers bar he handed out to trick-or-treaters. What? But the only victim he claimed was a teenager who got a slight prick from a hidden sharp object. But why would you? I know, and since Timothy O'Brien, there hasn't been a single case where a child has actually died after consuming contaminated Halloween treats. Ronald Clark O'Brien's appeal avenues were explored and turned down for nearly a decade after his guilty verdict. So it wasn't until March 31st, 1984, a few days before my birthday, (laughs) I just realised that, when all routes to survival had been exhausted, that he was finally put to death for his crime. By this time... The US Supreme Court had ruled the electric chair as a cruel and unusual punishment, so his life was ended with a lethal injection. Outside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, a crowd of around 300 people gathered to hear the man, the Halloween poisoner, had met his end shouting trick or treat and throwing candy at anti death penalty protesters. At 12.48am, when Ronald was pronounced dead, Hinton was in his childhood home in Amarillo, an eight-hour drive from Huntsville. That evening, he'd gone to his favourite lake, fishing rod in hand, and drunk a beer in celebration. So that is the story. Of the real candy man. How awful. Well, that's greed for you. So grateful that the other children survived. Yes. imagine? Yeah, yeah. And to take a policy out on your own children and plan to kill your own children is... 
horrendous enough, but to plan on killing other children just to make it look more like, mm-hmm. you know, as collateral damage as a cover-up. Exactly, it's That's awful. No morals, no... On that note, do you have any... Uh, I've got I've got another... I've got a story as well. You? Another one, yeah. Um, and I'm, it is kind of more of a sort of a ra- reminder, really, that um, stories are stories and we shouldn't act on them. So this is from the Los, the Los Angeles Press in 1994, uh, and it's called A Vampire Film Fan Drank a Victim's Blood. San Francisco. A man stabbed his girlfriend and drank her blood after seeing the movie Interview with a Vampire, police said. Lisa, who survived being stabbed several times in the chest and back, told police that Daniel was drinking her blood for several minutes. Ew. The two went to see went together on November the 17th to see the Tom Cruise drama about three vampires who consume the blood of humans, rats, pigeons, poodles. Lisa, 23, 23, woke up early the next morning to find Daniel in bed staring at her. She asked him, what's the matter? And he said, I'm going to kill you and drink your blood. Oh my God. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) Cup of tea? No? Okay. (laughs) Next evening, uh, Daniel stabbed Lisa in their bed. She managed to get help after warning him that he would go to prison if she died. Daniel, 25, is in jail on attempted murder charges, said he believed in vampires but wouldn't want to be one. I was influenced by the movie. I enjoyed the movie, he told police, but I cannot sit here and blame the movie. No, he cannot. You're right there, Daniel, you can't. You can't go stabbing people because you saw Tom Cruise in the movie. I mean, what was the last film you saw? Uh, the Adams Family. <laughs> oh my god, we watched that too. It's good, isn't it? You one, have... one where they go to camp. Yeah. Yes. Well, I watched them both, Adams but... Family, Adams Father Values. So you can't. I wouldn't become a black widow and go to camp. Go to camp. Or try and kill Fester. No, and I wouldn't try. Yeah, I wouldn't do any of that because I understand it's a film. <laughs> it's not real. It's not real. You don't have to act out. So I also made some top tips. Oh, tell me your top tips, Sean. One. Don't eat too many sweets and brush your teeth before you go to bed. Your teeth will thank you for this. They will, and I'm glad you mentioned not eating too many sweets, because when I was looking for top tips for surviving Halloween, it was all about dieting. Right, well, yeah, it's not the time to start. Not um, at all. I remember the first Halloween we had in our house where we live now, and I went out to work, and I left my husband at home with a vast amount of sweets. And I said, <laughs> you know, when the kids knock on, you know, so I, you know, they're going to want sweets and stuff. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I came home and he was just lying, looking uncomfortable on the sofa. And around him was scattered empty sweet packets. And I was like, what happened? And he was like, no one knocked on. And so because no one knocked on, he ate all the sweets. <laughs> Tip number two. It's okay to ask for help when carving a pumpkin. <laughs> So don't be embarrassed. If you need a bit of support... Are you saying this because we're going to have a competition and you're, like, trying <laughs> yeah. to... Oh, you might not be very good with a knife. <laughs> uh, tip number three. Make a healthy meal with the pumpkin flesh. It is tasty. Uh, and I will put up my uh, pumpkin soup recipe. Yes, good soup. Uh, it's COVID-19, so sanitise your door if trick-or-treating is permitted in your neighbourhood. And wear a fucking mask. It's Halloween. A Halloween mask. <laughs> well, I was going to say to you, 
do you think people will trick or treat? I believe it's cancelled this year now. I thought so, and I thought that I might. There's not many small people on our streets. So I thought I might do them little goodie bags and give them out beforehand. Uh, tell creepy stories, but remember they're only stories. You don't need to act on them. Do not kill people. Do not drink their blood. Take fun in family rituals, or maybe start some of your own. Take time to reflect on the past season. Winter is coming. And then I've got two more. Don't shoot trick-or-treaters. I'll try not to. And my final one, which I think is the most important one, is be creative with a cabbage. (laughs) Oh, your poor (laughs) neighbours. I know what you're doing. And they're my uh, top tips for uh, Halloween. I enjoyed that. I think the only tip I'd add is remember your loved ones are no longer here. That's nice. Maybe raise a glass of something seasonal. And, you know, none of us can do very much at the moment, so it's probably a nice time to spend some time at home with your family. And slowly and warm. Yeah, just to reminisce. Get your autumnal chill vibes on. What's with all this pumpkin spice stuff, though? I don't know. Have you not seen this? Everyone goes nuts about pumpkin spice. Don't know. Pumpkins don't smell particularly spicy when I've sniffed them. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not going to admit to that sniffing many pumpkins. You just admitted to it, John. <laughs> so I found Survivor of the Week in the Metro, okay, and it's Married at First Sight star left covered in blood after fighting off five burglars wielding machetes. Oh my god. Yes. Um, so Married at First Sight star David Pugh has been left covered in blood after fighting off five burglars wielding machetes at his home. The sales director, who has had training in martial arts, forced off the thugs using craft marja don't know how to pronounce it, a military self-defence system after they burst into his house at 3am. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So he told Birmingham Live, I got woken up at three in the morning with the sound of broken glass and doors being kicked in. It became an out-and-out battle in my house for about ten minutes. My martial arts training just kicked in. I wasn't being brave, I was very lucky. There were golf clubs, machetes, table legs flying. His dog, Seuss, was also attacked. Oh, no! So the burglars left empty-handed with David taking a photo of himself covered in blood after the ordeal. He has since been recovering in hospital. David, 56, is a self-described prepper. Oh, yeah. With a TV star reasoning that he always wants to be prepared for anything. Just show you a picture of him. Jeez. That's the picture it we took like after the attack. dropped a can of red paint on his head. That is blood. Wow. Poor guy. I bet he's well shaken up Look, after that. That's the bathroom. Oh my goodness. Just like blood everywhere. Yeah. And blood can get quite slippy. Yeah. So he he's proper prepper and during um during the Channel Four show he gifted his wife Shireen an everyday survival kit which included items such as a CPR face shield and a pen that can smash glass if you need to get out of a train or trapped in a car. I want one of them. Yeah. Does it also work as a pen? Oh, it doesn't say that. I'd feel quite James Bond if I had a pen that could smash glass and work as a pen. Yeah, I think that would be way, too much. way cooler. But yeah, he survived. How amazing is that? And the dog? The dog was fine. Phew. So, do you remember on the Urban Legends episode? Yeah. And I told you about Johnny's pit? Yeah. So my mum's just sent me a message. Okay. And she says, do you remember the boys, meaning my brothers, finding the skeleton at Johnny's pit? I do not. What? But apparently my dad had to go and investigate and he found an old pair of wellies with sticks in it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah. That's so So funny. that's Survivor of the Week plus a little update from my mum. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. 
So all that remains to say is Don't shoot trick or treaters and, and keep on surviving. Thank you.